You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says Yahweh, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says Yahweh, By the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were two hundred and thirty-two. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, seven thousand. And they went out at noon. While Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the thirty-two kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, Men are coming out from Samaria. He said, If they have come out for peace, take them alive, or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts, and the army that followed them. And each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and the chariots, and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. 
and do this. Remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places. And muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And the man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says Yahweh, Because the Syrians have said, Yahweh is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day, and the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city, and his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him, and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of Yahweh, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me, and said, Guard this man, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria.
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado to talk about everything. I want to talk about everything, and we're going to talk about everything to the best of our abilities. So help us, God. By God's grace, we'll talk well about things and think through them together. Today is Friday, January 12th, 2024. This is episode 794 of this podcast. And that was 1 Kings chapter 20 that I just read for you. Following up on Ahab, king of Israel, as Syria is making war on Israel. In this episode, we're going to talk about defining deviancy down, deviancy far and wide, 30 years later, a seminal essay by Daniel Patrick Moynihan being surveyed in City Journal at cityjournal.org. We'll also follow up with Aaron Wren over at AaronWren.com in a blog post he made to Substack back in early November about other conservatisms. What do we mean by saying that this or that is conservative? We'll talk a little bit about so-called tall poppy syndrome, how Australians relate to those who try to be excellent. Also a little bit of a back and forth between Elon Musk and Mark Cuban online regarding diversity, equity, and inclusivity. And lastly, we'll finish off with an excellent article by Jeff Schellenberger at compactmag.com, The Poverty of Anti-Wokeness, all of that and more in this episode. But before we get into all of those exciting topics, we're going to talk about 1 Kings chapter 20, the passage that we just read at the top of the episode. First off, it's interesting that this follows close on the heels of Elijah having despaired of life itself. The showdown, if you'll remember, just two chapters previous to this between Elijah and the prophets of Baal ends with a decisive victory, not first and foremost for Elijah, but for the God of Israel. Yahweh shows himself to be God and Baal to not be so much. And the end result is that the people of Israel fall on their faces and they say, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. The very next thing you know, in chapter 18, Elijah is telling the people to seize the prophets of Baal, the 450 who had been called out for this challenge by Elijah. Seize them, don't let any of them escape, and next thing you know, they're all put to the sword. They're all killed. Word gets back to Jezebel, right about the same time that God sends rains also, per Elijah's word because that was what had been foretold, that it would not rain in Israel until Elijah said so. And years went by, and the country suffered for it, and the economy, of course, is going to suffer when there's no rain. The morale of the people is going to suffer when there is no rain. But the way Ahab had been spinning it is this is all Elijah's fault, and, of course, it was Ahab's fault, and it was the house of Ahab, and it was his father's house, Omri's house and lineage, that had not just personally engaged in idolatry, but had led Israel in that and had led Israel in persecution of the prophets of Yahweh and the tearing down of the altars of Yahweh. And in chapter 19, we see Elijah getting a death threat, an unmistakable death threat from Jezebel in our previous episode, which is still subscriber only until February 1st. 99 cents a month can change that for you that it's behind a paywall temporarily. But 
Nevertheless, whether you do or you don't sign up, in our previous episode, we talked about Jezebel sending the death threat to Elijah that she was going to make his life as the life of one of those prophets he had put to the sword by the next day. And so he runs for his life. And then I think out of a combination of fear and shame, he asks God to take his life away. He despairs of life itself. He thinks he's the only one in Israel who is still jealous for Yahweh, who's still devoted to Yahweh, and who has not bent the knee to Baal or kissed the image of Baal. Now, how would Elijah know since God told him to be in hiding? He's assuming, and he probably shouldn't assume so much. Maybe it feels that way, but be careful with your feelings, how much you read into the situation from how you're feeling about the situation. Elijah is despairing, but the angel of Yahweh in chapter 19 of 1 Kings comes to Elijah personally while he is sleeping and apparently prepares him a little meal and a jar of water so that when he wakes up, the angel of Yahweh, who I believe is an appearance of the pre-incarnate son of God in the Old Testament, the angel of Yahweh tells him to eat and drink. He's going to need his strength because there's still more work to do. And so the previous chapter finishes up with God having told Elijah that there are 7,000, not just Elijah, but 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal and have not kissed an image of Baal. But more than that, and besides that, for Elijah personally, he has three primary objectives from God, three tasks. This is where Elijah's purpose and belonging has to be found Given the circumstances, he has to find his purpose and belonging in God alone, given that he is this fugitive, not from justice, but from injustice. Nevertheless, Jezebel seeks his life. Those who serve her or who fear her will also seek his life. And yet God says, you are to anoint a new king in Syria and a new king for Israel. And also you are to appoint a successor who will follow in your footsteps being prophet in Israel. And so that's the conclusion of the previous chapter. But then we pick up this in chapter 20. And it's as if it's a brand new story. And where's Elijah? He's not relevant to this story. This is happening in the meantime. You have Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, coming against Israel. And he doesn't just gather his own personal forces. Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has 32 kings who are with him, and horses, and chariots. And they are going against not just Israel in a general sense, they're going against Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. And it says in verse 2, we'll pick it up there, Ben-Hadad sent messengers into the city to King Ahab of Israel and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. Now at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, tell Ben-Hadad to pound sand. <laughs> That's a good reply. And yet, what does Ahab answer? Ahab answers, as you say, my Lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. Now, that's quite the white flag. You can have my gold. You can have my silver. You can have my wives, the best of my wives and children. So apparently Ahab has enough wives to spare that he's got best wives, 
plural, best wives. How is Ben-Hadad going to know that he got the best wives, by the way, and the best children? Maybe it's going to be the ones who were kind of obnoxious to Ahab anyways. And so he's like, yeah, okay, well, good enough. Problem solved. Two birds with one stone? No, probably not. Nevertheless, Ahab wants peace. And he's probably thinking, well, it's either that or we're too weak to fight against Syria and defend ourselves. And so I either give him what he wants and what he's demanding, or he takes everything. I'll just give him what he wants. And yet Ben-Hadad is not content with this quick conciliation, this quick surrender of what it is that he demanded at the first. And this is typical in negotiations. The opening offer, if you take it right away, you can just about guarantee that the other person is going to say, oh, wait a second, I forgot to calculate such and such. And then they're going to ask for more. And so you should typically try and haggle on the first offer if you can. Ahab's in not the best negotiating position, it seems, from the way that this is set up and the way it's presented. 32 kings are with Ben-Hadad, and Israel does not seem to have anything approaching their numbers. But then the messengers come again from Ben-Hadad to Ahab. It's too late to rethink it now. I sent to you saying, deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Now, that's a very different demand. Like I was saying, Ahab may have agreed too readily, and either A, he's giving Ben-Hadad exactly what it is that he wants, or Ahab is going to give Ben-Hadad exactly what Ahab wants to give Ben-Hadad. If Ahab is the one deciding, maybe he just rounds up some random women that he never much cared for and children from the city. Who knows if they're even Ahab's wives and Ahab's children, and maybe he reaches into his coffers and brings out a portion of the gold and the silver. But there's really only one way to make sure that Ben-Hadad has gotten the best of Ahab. That's to send his own people. And they'll watch and they'll observe. What about this? Oh, you like this? Because this isn't really just about having the wives and the children and the gold and the silver. This is about an assertion of dominance. There's something about this that has to do with wanting to inflict discomfort and humiliation on Israel and on Ahab specifically. There's something about this that is much more than just the money, the wealth, the people. This is symbolic, and Ben-Hadad is trying to flex probably for the sake of his own people, the Syrians, and also for the sake of these 32 kings who are with him. He's going to push this. Verse 7, the king of Israel, that is Ahab, calls the elders of the land and says, basically, see, this guy is seeking trouble. He wants trouble. I was trying to make peace with him. He sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And the elders and all the people say to Ahab, do not listen or consent. Basically, that's totally unreasonable. You can't. And interestingly, this is kind of a lose-lose at this point. If Ahab were to consent, he's maybe thinking on the front end before he calls the elders, the reason why he calls the elders of Israel to himself is if he does play 
Ben-Hadad's game here, and it is a humiliation game, that Ahab jeopardizes having lost so much face that he can't retain any measure of authority or respect in Israel on the other end. And so in that case, you've pushed too hard, Ben-Hadad, unless you really did want a fight, and this was all just a pretext. All this jockeying back and forth, you have no intention of having Ahab send you this stuff. You want a fight. You want blood, and then to take this stuff. Nevertheless, either way, conjecture aside, verse 9, he sent messengers back to Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king all that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. Ben-Hadad sends messengers right back again, the gods do so to me, and more also, and that sounds just like Jezebel, by the way, the gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. In other words, have you not noticed you are very badly outnumbered? You can't compare to the strength that I have at my beck and call. Help you. Who do you think you are telling me you're not going to acquiesce to my request? The response to this, you've got to give credit to Ahab. It's pretty epic. It's a pretty great response. As this is all posturing back and forth anyways, this is jockeying for position rhetorically before a fight, and now it's a surety that there's going to be a fight. The king of Israel answered him, tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. Ooh, okay. All right. Yeah, that's good. That's a good line. (laughs) I'm going to remember that. It's one thing for you to have all of these men at your beck and call ready to fight, but it's one thing to put the armor on and you're going to be very bold on your way to the battle. Let's see how you do after. Let's see how you're doing after the battle. That's the real test of how strong you are, not whether you can muster a larger force than I can, but whether you can take that force off the battlefield again or whether we're going to kill them on the battlefield. Ooh, wow, great, great stuff. Grab the popcorn. Ben-Hadad hears this reply from Ahab as he's drinking with the 32 kings in the booths. And he says to his men, take your positions. Now, all this trying to impress the 32 kings who are with Ben-Hadad forces Ben-Hadad's hand. Now he's at risk of losing face if he doesn't just rush into it. And this is one of the hazards that comes with being a little overconfident when you have too much of an overwhelming advantage in terms of numbers, and you're trying to impress not just your opponents, not just your enemies, not just the bystanders, but the people who are helping you to muster the larger force, when you're too preoccupied with that, sometimes you get a little sloppy. You get a little overhasty. Yeah, Ben-Hadad is feeling as though it's a little bit too much here. Now, verse 13 picks up. Under the heading, Ahab defeats Ben-Hadad, a prophet, a prophet, no name, just a prophet, tells Ahab, thus says Yahweh, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. And that's something. Okay, Mm, really, Yahweh said that. Ahab replies, by whom? The prophet says, thus says Yahweh by the servants of the governors of the districts. Ahab is now very curious. He's intrigued. 
He asks, who shall begin the battle? The prophet answers, you. To my surprise, probably yours also, that's how it shakes out. Ahab musters the servants of the governors of the districts, per the instruction from the prophet of Yahweh, and they are 232. That's not a great deal of strength by numbers. But then he musters all the people of Israel, 7,000. And that's still also not a great many men. They went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths. So either A, he is way overconfident, and that's why he's already celebrating, even though the battle hasn't been fought, or he's actually just a wreck of a person, right? He's rushed this whole thing, and it's because he's such a hard charger, and it's because he's so bold. He's always anteing up, and he's won to this point. Now he is quite drunk, and the 32 kings who have helped him to this point are also drinking themselves drunk. The servants of the governors of the districts go out first for Israel. Ben-Hadad sends out scouts. They report men are coming out of Samaria. And this is very cinematic, this bit of dialogue that follows in verse 18. Ben-Hadad says, if they come out for peace, take them alive. If they've come out for war, take them alive. Now, is that just him being drunk? So he doesn't know what he's saying at this point. He meant to say, if they've come out for war, kill them. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe he's that supremely confident that he is figuring it really doesn't matter. They're that impotent. It doesn't matter if they've come for peace or for war. We're so much stronger, we're going to be able to overpower them and capture them. Either way, I'm not worried about it. I'm going to get back to my drink now, my drinking games with these other kings. And oh, by the way, as I've mentioned before, when you have this many kings, be thinking these are probably kings of cities who are under a higher king. So the king of Syria is over many kings who are each respectively under him, but over cities, they're perhaps kings over counties or territories of about that size. In any event, these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them. So 7,232 roundabout each struck down his man and the Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. A larger force when it looks like they're definitely going to win can be so overconfident that any setback at all causes them to way overshoot in the letdown. When their dopamine dump goes lower than it had gone high at going into this battle, expecting an easy win, that's typically when the morale turns into everybody just running for their lives. And it's chaos and it's bedlam because there are so many, they get in each other's way and it actually becomes a liability. When you don't have good command and good discipline, you have lots of numbers, but what you have in numbers, you were trying to make up for in a lack of discipline, a lack of effective command. That's what appears to be in view here. The Syrians flee. Israel pursues them. Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escapes on a horse with a horseman, probably quite drunk. So that would have been embarrassing. The king of Israel goes out and strikes the horses and the chariots and strikes the Syrians with a great blow. 
the prophet comes near to the king of Israel and tells him, basically, in the spring, he's going to come against you again. But then what comes next is the taunt that really, it, it takes this apparently to another level that provokes Yahweh God, God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is said in Ben-Hadad's hearing, what his advisors tell him and what he believes and the talk among the Syrians, this is what turns God giving the Syrians once into the hands of the Israelites so that the Israelites will know that Yahweh is God. In this very next little bit of exchange about why did we lose, we see why God is going to give the Syrians into Israel's hands the next time in the spring when they come back again. The servants of the king of Syria say to him, their gods are gods of the hills, not singular God, so Yahweh's not being given the credit that is due him. The servants of the king of Syria are wrongly attributing the victory of the Israelites to plural gods and the gods of the hills, but then they say, and they're just making this up because they have no idea, it's just some plausible lie to try and save face for themselves and give the king cover. If you know this now, how come you didn't know it on the front end? Why didn't you know this at the beginning? It doesn't matter. Who cares? This guy just wants cover to buy for time, to stall for time. Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain. Surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this. And now this gets to actually some practical advice, some good strategic counsel. Do this. Remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places. Yeah, And also maybe don't be playing drinking games with those commanders either, right before the battle's about to begin. If the kings are the ones who are supposed to be leading their forces, maybe you guys shouldn't be getting roaring drunk in your booths next time. That might help, but you can't say that to the king or else, you know, it might go poorly for you, especially if he's drunk at the time. Remove the kings each from his post and put commanders in their places. Muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. Ben-Hadad, for his part, listens, and the spring comes, and Ben-Hadad musters the Syrians. They go up against Israel. There is a provisioning of the people of Israel, and they're going to face the forces of Syria. It says the people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. So once again, Israel is very much outnumbered, but a man of God, again, nameless. Who is he? It doesn't say. He's just a man of God. Came near and said to the king of Israel, that is Ahab, thus says Yahweh, because the Syrians have said, Yahweh is a God of the hills, which is not exactly what they said, but close enough. Yahweh is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. Interesting that with the previous victory for Israel being so that Israel will know that Yahweh is God. This victory is apparently predicated on the Syrians knowing that Yahweh is God. How about that? In any event, verse 29, they encamped opposite one another seven days. On the seventh day, the battle was joined. The people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. 
The rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. And is that the wall being toppled over on them by God himself, by God's angels? It doesn't say. It's just the complete destruction of the Syrian force. 127,000 men. That's quite a lot of men. I'm sure if you look up some scholarly modern commentary on this, there's nothing but skepticism about the numbers that are being presented. I'm fine with 127,000 men being said to have died on the Syrian side. But then these are the times we live in, everything extraordinary in antiquity, in the biblical text, that they can't absolutely prove and take credit for proving. They say, ah, it probably wasn't that. So that that way they can take credit for poo-pooing it and they get a citation somewhere and people take them seriously. I'll go with the text. Thank you very much. In any event, Ben-Hadad is now hiding. And he sends a messenger after getting counsel, his servants encourage him to give himself up and to ask for mercy. That he does, humbling himself after a fashion, putting on at least what would accord with humility. Now, instead of bold demands, there are pleas and there's some deal-making that he wants to engage in. Ben-Hadad, when he talks with Ahab, offers to restore all of the cities that Ben-Hadad's father took from Ahab's father. And what's more, he offers Ahab the opportunity to establish bazaars, that is, places to trade, marketplaces in Damascus, as Ben-Hadad's father, that is, interestingly, Ben-Hadad I. This is Ben-Hadad II, by my researches, grandson of Tabramon, great-grandson of Hezion. Ben-Hadad says that his father established bazaars in Samaria for trading, and Ahab will be allowed to establish bazaars in Damascus for trading, to exchange goods and currency. Here's some economic stimulus, some incentives. Trade would be very profitable to your people. Access to our markets would be very profitable to your people. What do you say? If you let me go, I'll make that happen. Ahab says, I will let you go on these terms. And so they have an agreement. Mercy for Ben-Hadad, economic benefit for Israel. What's not to love? Good stuff, right? The end of the story. They lived happily ever after. Hmm. No, no, not quite. Verse 35, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of Yahweh, strike me, please. The man refused to strike him. Why? It doesn't say, but he was supposed to strike him because that was the command of Yahweh. So just casual disobedience. No, I'm not doing that. Okay. Well, because you have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And so it was. And that happened. You want to be casual in your disregard for God's commands? Well, maybe we'll be casual in the disregard for your life. And everybody can see that these two things are related. Be an object lesson. Fine. Have it your own way. Verse 37, he found another man and said, strike me, please. And if word got around, which you would imagine would probably happen, the man struck him. (laughs) I don't want to get eaten by a lion like the last guy. So yeah, okay, I'll hit you and I'll hit you hard. How hard do you want me to hit you? Okay, I'll hit you really hard. He strikes him, wounds him, and the prophet departs and waits for the king, by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And so maybe the reason, maybe the purpose for being struck 
was so that this would be a convincing disguise. Not just with a bandage, but with an apparent wound. I really need to sell this. I need to look like I'm hurt. And all this from God. A little bit of deception, a little ruse, but that's all right. The prophet departed and waited for the king, by the way, because now he's not just a certain man of the sons of the prophets. Now he's a prophet in his own right because he's speaking God's words after him. That's all it really takes. As the king passed by, verse 39, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. I don't know whatever happens to or else, but it's apparently forgotten in short order, and maybe that's part of the test here. Verse 40, as your servant was busy, here and there he was gone. In other words, this is kind of like Nathan, the prophet, telling David a story about two men and sheep, this being a parable, not actually of David having killed Uriah, but rather the really big sin having been that David took Uriah's wife Bathsheba and laid with her and got her pregnant. Not the pregnancy thing first and foremost, but the laying with her, the committing adultery, that's the big sin. David, not realizing that this is a story about him, says the man deserves death for having taken his neighbor's beloved lamb and slaughtered it to serve to guests when he had a flock with lots of sheep in it he could have drawn from. Nathan then says, you are the man. This is a story about you, by the way, but thank you for being honest and objective. You're right, and so also you deserve death. You've said it by your own mouth. It's a play on do unto others as you would have them do unto you, by the way, which is a quick test for whether you are wronging someone if they were to do it back to you or if anybody were to do that thing back to you. Would you object? Would you complain? Would you cry out? This isn't fair. This isn't right. Well, then there's your answer for whether it's right that you would do that to them. But the king of Israel, verse 40 says, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Verse 41 this prophet hurries to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognizes him as one of the prophets. Now, maybe that's because, again, with the word getting around about the first man who was struck by a lion because he wouldn't strike this son of the prophets, perhaps that's why Ahab recognizes that this is a prophet in any event. The prophet says to Ahab, thus says Yahweh, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, your life shall be for his, your people for his people, as in you shouldn't have made that deal with Ben-Hadad. That was not of God. He was not given into your hand for you to cut a deal at the first chance you got. He was given into your hand to be disposed of. You didn't do what I wanted you to do. And so, your life will be for his life. His life was supposed to be taken. That would have been just. Because you didn't take his life, your life is going to be taken. Verse 43, the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. This is very troubling for Ahab. All the more rather than less, because now, not once but twice, overwhelming odds, being vastly outnumbered by the Syrians, God has given a victory to Israel and told Ahab on the front end, I am going to do this. I'm going to give them into your hands. When then the next thing is that God says through the prophet 
to Ahab, your life shall be for Ben-Hadad's life. Ahab apparently takes this seriously. He's very troubled and he's sullen. He's depressed when he goes home. This is quite the narrative. And this, again, doesn't just tell us about ancient people's unfamiliar times and places, events that we may wonder what they have to do with us. The most important thing about 1 Kings chapter 20, and it was supposed to be the most important thing for them as well, but it should be the most important thing for us, is that we would know God's character. We would know God and that this is who he is. This is who he was before he showed himself to be this God, Yahweh God, who is not just a God of the hills. He's the God of all creation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is also for us to know that this is who God is, and this is who God always will be. It's who he always has been and who he is now and who he always will be. So take note. But moving on from 1 Kings chapter 20, let's dive right into the first of our articles to consider in this episode. From Wai Hua Chin, published at cityjournal.org, Deviancy Far and Wide, 30 years later, a seminal essay by Daniel Patrick Moynihan is as relevant as ever. She writes, Last year marked the 20th anniversary of the passing of Daniel Patrick Moynihan, distinguished educator, politician, diplomat, and four-term U.S. senator from New York State from 1977 to 2001. It also marked the 30th anniversary of the publication of his landmark essay, Defining Deviancy Down, in The American Scholar. The essay soon became famous on the political right, and it's no surprise why. Even today, its observations are bracingly relevant. Moynihan brilliantly related the then-rising tide of crime in the U.S. to the normalization of behaviors once considered deviant. Moynihan understood well the social problems he was analyzing, but he underestimated how far and wide the redefinition of deviancy would spread. When his essay was published in 1993, New York City and much of the country were reeling from the drug crisis, and anti-drug laws received broad public support. Today, politicians in the city and elsewhere have either legally or effectively decriminalized drugs. Cannabis stores seemingly are on every block, and opioids are widely available, prompting the city council to mandate that public schools must stock Narcan to prevent drug overdoses. Moynihan is also celebrated for his controversial 1965 report on black poverty, the Negro family, the case for national action, which linked the rise of single motherhood to social dysfunction and crime. In those days, two-parent families were still considered an ideal to which all should aspire, not a mark of white privilege, and mothers were mothers, not birthing people. Today, 30% of households with children in the U.S. are headed by single parents. 40% of all births are to single mothers, and 70% of black children are born into single-parent families with predictable results for social dysfunction and crime. Our political leaders could have sought to make criminal life less attractive by promoting high ideals for families and communities. Instead, they have elected to make it easier to become a criminal by defining deviancy down. Again, criminal justice policies now rest on the magical claim that if we reduce the ranks of police— make it riskier for those who remain to do their jobs, cease prosecuting or downgrade whole categories of crime, and seek to eliminate incarceration altogether, then communities will become safe. To believe in this program, one must ignore the fact that homicides 
in cities like Philadelphia and Milwaukee reached record highs in recent years, and in Chicago reached levels not seen in decades, or that unprecedented numbers of taxpayers and retailers are fleeing San Francisco, Baltimore, and New York because of crime. Many public officials proclaim that crime rates are down and point to official statistics showing fewer arrests, charges, convictions, and incarcerations. They abandon their usual veneration of feelings and lived experience and suggest when constituents remain skeptical that the problem is all in their heads. As Chico Marx says, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? In criminal justice, it's see no crime. In our schools, it's see no poor performance. In education, deviancy is the failure to learn, and it has been defined down by lowering academic standards and ignoring poor student and teacher performance. Public schools once had teachers, many of whom were trained in normal schools, named after the French École Normales, to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, as well as norms like discipline, punctuality, and respect for the written word. Now, equity-driven schools smear such values as white supremacist. The education establishment greets new data on student performance with plans not to improve learning, but to paper over the decline by reducing or eliminating tests for both teachers and students, lowering curriculum standards, and demanding more money. As Moynihan noted, there is good money to be made out of bad schools. Teachers' unions use their clout to amass political power and wealth while opposing merit and accountability. Meantime, half of all American students and up to 83% and 93% of students in Chicago and Baltimore, respectively, perform below grade level. To mask these failures and to promote equity, grade inflation, and outright grade fraud are now common, as are attempts to eliminate or dumb down top U.S. selective public schools, such as Boston's exam schools, New York City's specialized high schools, San Francisco's Lowell High School, and Fairfax County's Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. Moynihan criticized dishonesty in public K-12 education. One wonders if he realized that it was also spreading to colleges, where race-based admissions, remedial courses, grade inflation, diluted syllabi, reduced graduation requirements, and non-rigorous pseudo-academic fields are increasingly the norm. Alarmingly, this decline also extends to law schools and medical schools where standardized testing and even licensing exams are being targeted for elimination. Since Moynihan's essay appeared, an elaborate conceptual superstructure has established itself in America to provide cover for defining deviancy down. This superstructure goes by the name of critical race theory, CRT, or by its street name, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, DEI. Much has been written about the harm and havoc CRT and DEI have wrought in all aspects of American life. With the help of progressives deeply embedded in federal, state, and local government, DEI has grown into a multi-billion dollar industry, a leviathan rivaling the Aid to Families with Dependent Children, AFDC program, that Moynihan tackled in his time. CRT and DEI do more than just provide fancy terms, e.g. equity, to justify lowering standards, offering a new and improved version of defining deviancy down. They embrace dishonest double standards and celebrate self-contradictory nonsense like repressive tolerance, democratic proletarian state, subjective truths, anti-racist racism, and most recently, duplicative language as a new term for clear-cut plagiarism. Even the three words in DEI mean their exact opposites. The saga of former Harvard president Claudine Gay which began to escalate with her 
and two other college presidents' disgraceful congressional testimonies on December 5th richly encapsulates the decline of American higher education under the reign of CRT and DEI. The three presidents, all steeped in the ideology, saw no contradiction between their free speech defense of pro-Hamas rioters on their campuses on the one hand and their ruthless application of codes of conduct and values of the university on students, campus speakers, and even tenured professors who went against the DEI party line. It didn't take long for Penn's alumni and board to reject such moral rot. Penn's President Liz McGill resigned on December 9th, 2023. Scott Bach, head of Penn's Board of Trustees and McGill's backer, then resigned as well. Claudine Gay, supported by the head of the Harvard Corporation, Penny Pritzker of the Pritzker Family Fortune, held on until January 2nd, weeks after it was revealed that she had plagiarized portions of her PhD thesis at Harvard as well as language in her scant academic papers. Compromised scholarship should have immediately disqualified her as head of a university, as it did the white male former president of Stanford. But DEI's double standard bought her time. An article last June in Inside Higher Ed conveniently suggested that we can be too punitive in thinking about academic integrity. The mounting embarrassment finally brought Gay down. The people responsible for the fiasco of her hiring remain in place. They even praised Gay and smeared her critics in a statement released after her resignation. Moynihan, who also was a professor at Harvard and a prolific scholar, would have been disgusted. A new year calls for new resolutions. We should resolve collectively to raise not lower standards and to restore respect for the universal values that support academic and professional achievement. Then we can make progress in addressing the social problems that Moynihan so astutely identified. Waihua Chin, an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute is the founding president of the Chinese American Citizens Alliance of Greater New York, an all-volunteer organization advocating for equal rights for New Yorkers, especially in education. And go figure, of course, an Asian American would be upset about what's happening in education as there's been a bias against Asian Americans, in part because statistically they do so much better. But then that's due to cultural emphases, cultural values, multi-generational encouragement and even urging insistence of parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts that young people will apply themselves. They will work hard. They will study. They will be honest. They will be respectful. They will represent their families well. And what do you know? They do well as a result. And when your cultural values are just the opposite in other cultures, subcultures of American society, of course, statistically, you're not going to do as well. And the proponents of CRT say that's proof of systemic racism. No, it's perhaps proof that some cultures are more successful than others when they pursue success and others are less successful when they define success as behaving badly and just doing whatever you want, being undisciplined, being lazy in any event. There you go. There is the article in its entirety defining deviancy down indeed. Before I say Anything in commentary about Wai Hua Chin's piece, besides what I have said? Let's move on, and let's also consider Aaron Wren's blog post from November 2nd of last year, titled Other Conservatisms. He writes that there are many different forms of conservatism besides the version on offer from the American conservative movement. And I quote, Conservatism is famously difficult to define. Some have suggested that the only thing unifying the right is opposition to the left. Others say that a rejection of pure egalitarianism 
and the acceptance of some inequalities or hierarchies in society is the key theme of the right. In the United States, conservatism does seem to have some basic content to it. However, this conservatism emerged after World War II. While it draws on some pre-war threads like classical liberalism, in my view, post-war American conservatism represents something basically new. The content of this movement has been described as the three-legged stool, consisting of free market economies, traditionalism or social conservatism, and anti-communism or an aggressive foreign policy posture. In his book, Right-Wing Critics of American Conservatism, Professor George Holly astutely notes that there's nothing about these three things that naturally seems to go together to make up conservatism. He writes, In the contemporary context, when we describe an American as politically conservative, we typically mean that this person favors limited government intervention in the economy, adheres to a traditional religious faith, and believes these religious values should influence public policy, and generally favors a strong military presence abroad. Without knowing any context, there is no a priori reason one would infer that these three attributes are correlated with each other, or even that they are necessarily right-wing. These policy preferences were not always associated with each other. The formation of the coherent conservative movement we know today can be traced no farther than the mid-20th century. Aaron Wren continues, The post-war conservative consensus is clearly in trouble, threatened by the collapse of the Soviet Union that removed the anti-communist glue holding the movement together, the decline of religion in the U.S., my negative world, and the rejection of this policy set by the voters of the Republican Party, populism. Any sort of new, viable conservatism in the U.S. needs to update the product on offer. In that regard, it's good to look at other forms of conservatism, not necessarily to adopt them wholesale, but to stimulate our thinking about what conservatism could or should be. Now, that said, he's got a number of offerings here for our consideration. One, Monocle Magazine's Globalist Conservatism. Another, Digby Baltzell's Aristocratic Conservatism. I'm not going to get into either of those. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to move right along to our next story because, again, I'm not going to comment on this any more than just to say, there you go, there's the intro to his blog post if you want to check out the examples that he presents to stimulate your thinking, you certainly can. The link will be in the description for this podcast episode. Meanwhile, as far as this episode goes, we're going to move right along to Joel Abbott's post from January 11th of this year at Not The Bee. This video taught me a wild fact about Aussies and tall poppy syndrome. I'll play the first and only audio clip in this episode from a embedded tweet by Elijah Schaefer that Joel Abbott very conveniently placed in this post so that I could see it, not just me, I'm sure, but also me, since I'm still not on Twitter. I'm still not able to get on my Twitter account. I'm glad that this is embedded in the post at Not The Bee so that we can talk about it. But a little warning, there is some language, a couple of instances of uh, alternative word a synonym for feces, but set that off to the side. The content, the substance of what is being said here is what we want to pay attention to. That's why I'm playing it, not for the language, and I'm not going to decline to play it for the sake of the language either, but filter out 
the wastewater and let's consider what is being said in cut one here and then we'll have some thoughts following. Australia is one of the hardest countries to be successful in and I mean that in a sense of you won't get any support or any help from anybody. Most people in Australia, they love to drink, they love to do drugs, they love to go out on the weekend and they love to, you know, get smashed. And everyone here just loves hookup culture as well. If you try to do anything that's remotely different, that you try to go out on your own path and do something and make something for yourself, nobody's going to support you. We'll just try to tear you down and bring you back down to their level. If you think that you're remotely special or anything, and I'm speaking from experience, people will just shit on you. Just try to bring you back down to their level because they don't want to see you doing better than them. That's the reality of it. But I guess on the bright side, if you do make it, you know, the bar is set pretty low for people to actually be something in Australia. Like people just glorify people that do OnlyFans, you know, like shit like that. People can do something like that and it's so easy and there's hardworking people that don't get the credit they deserve. If you're working towards something and it's one of your dreams, just keep working towards it. Don't let anyone else talk you out of it and follow your dreams. Okay, and cut. Here, I will add a little bit of comment to say just briefly before we move on, because I want to save the majority of my comment for after we've reviewed all of the resources for this episode. But I'll just say ever so briefly, this would resonate in the US and it would be picked up by a lot of people who think of themselves as conservative, but they're really anti-woke They're really anti-DEI and CRT and social justice, as it's been called, but it's really an injustice. This would get picked up by a lot of people, just like it's being picked up by Elijah Schaefer, and it's being posted to Not To Be by Joel Abbott, and I'm talking about it with you on my podcast. All of us, generally speaking, aligned as anti-woke, but then what does it mean to follow your dreams? What is he talking about, this Aussie, when he describes tall poppy syndrome, where people will, if they think you're getting too big for your britches, you're being excellent, you're trying to do something better and greater, make something more of yourself than they do. What's he talking about here that is inherently conservative? This could be a pitch for being progressive, really. Or you could have a conservative variation on trying to conserve tall poppy syndrome, so-called, where you cut down those who start to stick out and be exceptional and excel. You could have a conservative form of that, and you've got to be careful, that is to say, what it is that you're conserving, because what you're conserving might just be a really bad status quo. It might be a really bad attitude that is somehow making sacred Something as base and wicked and sinful and not (laughs) given to success and being blessed as covetousness and jealousy and envy and malice and bitterness. What are we conserving? And not only how are we defining deviancy, are we defining deviancy down, but are we actually even trading bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter calling good evil and evil good when we say that those who pursue excellence are actually the problem and those who embrace mediocrity, they're the good citizens. They're the ones who are regular chaps. This is very important to reckon with when we're thinking about what we'll talk about at the very, very last in Joff's piece, The Poverty of Anti 
woke. But before we get to that, let's talk about another entry. This one reported at the Daily Wire. Zach Jewell, January 5th. Elon Musk, Mark Cuban, debate DEI. When should we expect to see a short white Asian woman on the Mavs? Zach Jewell writes, Billionaires Elon Musk and Mark Cuban got into a social media spat this week over the controversial race-based hiring practice adopted by numerous companies and institutions known as Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, DEI. The argument began Wednesday when Cuban, the former owner of the Dallas Mavericks, took exception to Musk's definition of DEI after the ex-owner said, quote, DEI is just another word for racism, end quote, adding that it discriminates, quote, on the basis of race, end quote, which is, quote, literally the definition of racism, end quote. Cuban responded to Musk's comment in a lengthy post on X, attempting to defend DEI in hiring practices. In his post, Cuban argued that diversity, equity, and inclusion are all good goals for companies to pursue, writing, quote, having a workforce that is diverse and representative of your stakeholders is good for business, end quote. He added, quote, equity is a core principle of business. Put your employees in a position to succeed, end quote. Cuban then gave his defense for companies focusing on equity. Quote, great companies create environments that reduce unnecessary stress of their employees, I'm not talking hitting quota or getting the product out the door stress, which in turn increases productivity. This is what inclusion is all about, end quote. Cuban wrote, quote, making all employees, no matter who they are or how they see themselves, feel comfortable in their environment and able to do their jobs, end quote. Musk replied to Cuban's post on Thursday, writing, quote, cool. So when should we expect to see a short white Asian woman on the Mavs, end quote. Great question. Great question. Now, there's more to Zach Jules reporting, but it's not enough just to ask that question. There needs to be the follow-up and there needs to be a firm foundation for why it is that we don't do things that way. Why you're not just trying to find the most racially, sexually, religiously diverse team and defining that as winning. If we were being successful because we were focused on who's the best at actually putting points on the scoreboard for our team or who's the best at stopping the other team from putting points on the scoreboard for their team. That's how we win. When that was the focus and it suddenly shifts, whether we're talking basketball or any other thing, when it suddenly shifts to what color is everybody's skin and maybe we don't want too many black people on the team because the team needs to look like America. If your team shifts and everybody else is still focused on meritocracy and trying to be the very best that they can be as a team, which means having the very best players in the very best positions and having the very best coaches, teaching them how to work together, how to pay attention to what one another is doing, how to build each other up, how to reinforce each other, how to coordinate with one another. When the other teams are still focused on core competence and the objective of winning basketball games, the other teams are going to win and the DEI team is going to lose. And that's part of, I think, why the push is to make everybody go to this. Make everybody go to this. Mandate it. So that way you can hide the failures by saying, well, it's just climate change. This is still just an after effect of COVID. I don't think we give enough credit 
to how COVID has become a blank check, not just for bypassing safeties in a major election year, say, for instance, when Donald Trump was up for re-election. We give a lot of talk to that, and lots of people on the right will say it seems like that was just a trial run for something more sinister. But then what if it wasn't, first and foremost, a trial run for something more sinister? What if actually it's just like popping smoke so that you can hide the negative impact of DEI initiatives? You can hide the negative effects of wokeness on the economy. You can hide the negative effects of more and more socialism, more and more taxation, more and more regulation on the economy. And then however long it takes in your theory to get a rebalancing of everything to where we're better off than we were before, or if we're never better off than we were before, you just attribute all of that to COVID. You say that was all just the lockdowns. We were all in the same boat. None of us knew. What if you all did know? And yeah, there was an illness. And yeah, people got sick and some people died from it. But that was cooked up in a lab. That was released. Even a lot of the protocols initially you knew weren't going to be effective. In fact, you knew those protocols were going to make things worse. You wanted to make things worse so that you could exploit a crisis of your own making so that you could seize control of the means of production because this is really just a play for communism. DEI is really just a play for communism. It's really just a means of carrying out a cultural revolution. COVID was useful for making DEI into our new God. And anybody who speaks out against DEI, they're the apostate, they're the heretic, they're the blasphemer, they're the ones who need to be pushed to the margins of society, to the fringes of society, silenced online, vilified in the media, regulated and taxed and investigated and harassed, and even, yes, arrested and jailed, detained indefinitely if they protested any of this. Destroy their careers, destroy their credibility, all the while. Whatever metrics were the measures of who should be authoritative, who should be credible, who should be retained or promoted before, none of those are being used as the basis anymore because the people who have seized the levers of power know that their initiatives are not predicated on more material success being the result. They know that and they're just trying to stall for time so they have something else to blame for the negative economic effects. If one team starts putting as their point guard some short white Asian woman, they lose. But if the whole league has to be in quarantine and lockdown, and actually you require every team to make their point guard into a short white Asian woman, then if there are a lot more points on the scoreboard for all teams, then you try something else. And then you say, okay, well, we need to have the rest of the team be replaced by women of color. <laughs> like South Park joining the multiverse or the panderverse, as it's called. Do that. And if everything starts to break down, just fudge the numbers. Fudge the numbers. You guys were doing that with COVID fatalities. If somebody died with COVID, you were saying that they died from COVID. And interestingly, 
when it's assisted suicide up in Canada, they do just the opposite. If somebody wanted to die and they happen to have some other condition, you say that they died due to that other condition, not due to the state actually encouraging them to end themselves with the help of the state. Because, oh, by the way, now it's the state's decision whether to approve a certain procedure or operation or treatment plan, and it costs, right? They want to keep costs low. And are you a good return on an investment? Because now we're thinking of you as a human resource, first and foremost, not as man, woman, or child created in the image of God. This is where we get to. And on the front end, it's advertised as setting up a bazaar in Damascus. But the compromise really needs to be called out for being contrary to the laws of God, the moral fabric of the universe. This is destructive and it's dangerous and it's costly and it's stressful, not just because it's a change and all change is disruptive. No, no, because this violates the laws of God. This violates the fabric of the universe as God designed the universe, as he created us in his image and commanded us and blessed us and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The folks who are most bent on DEI are okay with the surplus population decreasing right alongside what they regard as surplus production. Never mind that as they're orchestrating everything, they make sure that they have plenty and they have over and above. But then again, it's not enough to criticize those people. There's a certain poverty, as we're going to get into here in just a minute, there's a certain poverty just opposing those people, just being anti those people. There's something missing. There's a nutrient deficiency. It's a malnourished coalition. If all we're doing is getting together to fight against Ben-Hadad and the Syrians who've come to sack our city and steal our women and our children and run off with our gold and our silver and humiliate us, what did God say? And if God would give our enemy into our hands, are we happy to cut a deal? The first little concession they're prepared to offer us. Let's get into that, actually, right now. Geoff Schellenberger at Compact published The Poverty of Anti-Wokeness December 29th of last year, so just a few weeks ago. Ironically, the magazine is called Compact, but Speechify tells me that if I asked my computer to read this to me aloud instead of my reading it like a Neanderthal, it would take nearly half an hour. So there's a little funny. This is quite a long piece, which we are not going to read all of. We just do not have that kind of time. But do read all of it as you have the opportunity. There's a reading list as well at the top, as if 30 minutes worth of reading, depending on your pace, uh, weren't enough. How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement by Frederick DeBoer, Simon & Schuster, $29.99. The Origins of Woke, Civil Rights, Law, Corporate America, and the Triumph of Identity Politics by Richard Hananiah, Broadside, $32. The Identity Trap, The Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time by Yasha Mounk, Penguin, $32. No Politics But Class Politics by Adolph Reed Jr. and Walter Ben Michaels, Eris, $25. America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything by Christopher Rufo, Broadside, $32. Those look like some interesting titles. You might pick them up. You might pick one of them up, the last one especially. 
looks interesting, even just from the title. But nevertheless, without further ado, let's jump in at the top of The Poverty of Anti-Wokeness by Jeff Schollenberger. He writes, Ten years ago, Tanahisi Coates, then a rising writer at The Atlantic, attended a gathering of liberal journalists at the White House. On his blog, Coates had taken a dim view of the post-racial era that had supposedly dawned in 2008, but in a previous encounter with Obama, he had refrained from voicing his criticisms. He decided to be more adversarial that day in 2013. In an exchange with the president, he highlighted the failure of the Affordable Care Act to directly target racial disparities in health care access. The president defended his record, and the two sparred briefly. Afterward, Obama took Coates aside and told him, don't despair. On a personal level, Obama's advice proved apt. In the years that followed, Coates enjoyed a meteoric rise, emerging as liberal America's most faded black man other than the 44th president himself. The main vehicle of his ascent was his 2015 book, Between the World and Me, which topped the New York Times bestseller list for weeks, won him accolades including the National Book Award, and earned him a MacArthur Genius Grant. That book, Coates said, was the fruit of the 2013 exchange at the White House, which had motivated him to justify what Obama recognized as his despair. Yet notwithstanding Coates' professional success, the author's despair seemed to get the better of Obama's hope at every turn. The same year Coates visited the White House, George Zimmerman was acquitted for the killing of Trayvon Martin, incepting Black Lives Matter as a social media hashtag. The next summer, Eric Garner and Michael Brown died at the hands of the police, setting off the first phase of the racial reckoning that would gain momentum in the years to come. The shocking rise of Donald Trump helped make Coates' lonely descent the standard wisdom of the chattering classes. America had never really made progress on race and was even moving backward. White supremacy remained the immovable foundation of American life. Bookending Trump's term in office were two revisionist works of history that gave voice to these newly self-evident truths. Ibram X. Kendi's Stamped from the Beginning, for which Kendi earned the National Book Award in 2016, the year after Coates, and the New York Times Magazine 1619 Project, which won journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones a Pulitzer. Hannah-Jones and Kendi also joined Coates in the most rarefied literary club of all, winning MacArthur Genius Grants in 2017 and 2021, respectively. Malcolm X recounted in his autobiography that a blonde co-ed once asked him what she could do to help his cause, to which he replied, nothing. In contrast, the emergent anti-racist intelligentsia of the 2010s combined its counsel of despair with a ramping up of moral demands on white America. A considerable subset of white liberals hearkened eagerly to the call. The fatalistic new gospel didn't occasion passivity, but frenzied activity. Meeting the rising demand for the reading public for actionable guidance, Kendi in 2019 followed up the bleak history lessons of Stamped from the Beginning with the practical handbook, How to Be an Anti-Racist. It was just one entry in a burgeoning new subgenre, instructing initiates of racial pessimism on how to call out racism, to educate oneself about it, and to do the work. The most widely read of these was former education professor and diversity consultant Robin DeAngelo's White Fragility, published in 2018. Other notable titles included Ijeama Aluo's So You Want to Talk About Race, 2018, and Leila Saad's me and White Supremacy 2020. 
Meanwhile, according to LinkedIn data, the diversity, equity, and inclusion industry ballooned by 71% between 2015, the year Coates' book appeared, and 2020. Over the past year, a slew of polemics against progressive identity politics have appeared in print, an anti-woke publishing boom that rivals the woke boom that began a decade ago. The more interesting of these critiques converge on the conclusion that what occurred over the past decade was, above all, a process of elite radicalization that redounded to the benefit of well-positioned professionals who turned identity into a currency of social advancement. Depending on their politics, anti-woke polemicists may deplore this development because it forestalls more comprehensive projects of social transformation or because it degrades institutions they don't think should have been transformed at all. One of the most significant achievements of wokeness was to distract many of its opponents from these differences and from the fundamental political questions underlying them. Now, we'll just pause right here and let's just stop to appreciate how well this is written. This is very, very well written, very attractive as it's presented to, really well done, Compact Magazine. I like what I'm seeing here. I'm not familiar with Jeff Schollenberger or Compact Magazine otherwise, but with this as an intro, I like what I see. As for the substance, now we have the topic. Is it enough to be opposed to woke? Is that enough for us to go on to have a coalition like Elon Musk sparring with Mark Cuban is of a piece with some Australian telling you to follow your dreams? Or Aaron Wren saying there are other conservative visions besides just American conservatism? Or how about Wai Hua Chin writing for City Journal? Do I know enough about what she's proposing just from her criticizing the DEI effect on education? The simple answer is no. This is not sufficient. This is not enough to go on. And no, it's not enough to know what you're opposed to. And that's the whole problem with anti-racism in the first place. I'm opposed to racism. Well, yeah, but what's your idea? How are you going to make the life of a young black man and his bride-to-be safer, more prosperous as they contemplate marriage and then starting a family and owning a home and his having a good job that allows him to provide but also still be there? What are you proposing other than just virtue signaling about how anti-racist you are? What are you proposing that will actually make that man and that woman better off as a result? The same kind of a question deserves to be asked of the anti-woke folk. It's not enough to be anti-woke any more than it is enough to be (laughs) anti-racist. And actually, this is a really salient point, that being anti-woke can become a kind of virtue signal, just like anti-racism has become a virtue signal. In fact, if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense why we think certain things go together, except that they're anti-woke a lot of the time. Is it possible that we're imitating too closely the tactics of the left? Is it possible that actually far from conserving a kind of personal liberty, a kind of rugged individualism that would be familiar to previous generations of Americans, we're actually ironically falling into a trap of embracing collectivism? where we say we all have to be unified on being anti-woke. Well, once we're all unified on anti-woke, what's to stop somebody 
from injecting a really bad idea into our fragile unity, and then we all have to go with it. And people will say, if you don't all go with this thing, even over the side of a cliff, we'll go back to being woke again. You don't want that, do you? If we don't watch our step, that's exactly what will happen. In fact, that's perhaps what is happening at present. And so this is an important article. And thank you, by the way, since I didn't mention it sooner, thank you, J.P. Chavez, for sending this to me because this is excellent, excellent stuff. But back to the excellent stuff from Jeff Schellenberger. He writes, the post-Obama gospel of anti-racism systematically overturned the assumptions that had guided liberal thinking for half a century. In The Identity Trap, one of the major critiques of identity politics to appear in the past year, the political scientist Yasha Monk notes that while the left flank of the political spectrum, quote, has historically been characterized by its universalist aspirations, end quote, progressives over the past decade, quote, embraced a vision of the future in which society would forever be profoundly defined by its division into distinct identity groups, end quote. In the new paradigm, progress no longer meant treating people as individuals or members of the human race, and it might even entail segregation into ethnic affinity groups and the like. Quote, both private actors and public institutions, end quote, Mount writes, now openly aim to, quote, make the way they treat people depend on the groups to which they belong, end quote. The yearning to transcend racial divisions, a longstanding liberal aspiration, was now dismissed as a form of racism. Some who didn't get the update in time were shocked to learn around that time that the statement, all lives matter, was highly offensive, and that to declare that they don't see race revealed them to hold an embarrassingly backward sensibility, not a forward-thinking one. This logic, what Mounk calls the identity synthesis, was at work in Coates' objection to Obamacare. The problem for Coates wasn't the law's failure to offer truly universal coverage, but that it was too universal and should have sought to remedy racial disparities directly, rather than expanding access for all. The next year, Coates made a related argument in his blockbuster Atlantic essay, The Case for Reparations, which brought a marginal proposal into the mainstream of political debate. A national reparations bill of the sort Coates advocated remains a long shot, but some democratic states and cities have convened committees to develop more localized versions. On a more limited scale, during the pandemic, health authorities in some states began determining access to COVID treatments on the basis of race. For a long time, the standard liberal aspiration to colorblindness had been in tension with support for affirmative action and prioritizing access to medicine based on race would surely have provoked discomfort in an earlier age. But by 2020, state functionaries had no qualms about doing so. Kendi's assertion that, quote, Racial discrimination is not inherently racist, end quote, provided a straightforward legitimation for the newly accepted approach. The trajectory of Coates, Kendi, and like-minded figures puts us on firmer ground in defining the word woke, which over the past few years has been weaponized as a pejorative by right-wing polemicists. Before it was anything else, wokeness was a pessimistic counter-narrative to Obama-era post-racialism. It sought to establish the violent subjugation of black people as the central truth of America's past and present and to reorient policymaking accordingly. As Coates put it in one of the most quoted lines from Between the World and Me, quote, in America, it is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage, end quote. For whites, getting woke meant becoming attuned to the omnipresence and intransigence of racial oppression. 
At a policy level, it meant any approach that didn't put race front and center was at best inadequate and at worst pernicious. Some have attempted to offer less colloquial terms than woke for discussing contemporary identitarian progressivism. Mounk uses the identity synthesis. The writer Wesley Yang refers to the successor ideology, and many on the right continue to favor cultural Marxism. But the traction of woke, a term originating in African-American vernacular English, reveals something important about the worldview in question, that it takes American racial politics as the basic template for understanding all power relations pitting oppressor against oppressed. The deployment of woke as a dismissive term for generic progressivism has obscured the word's origins as a descriptor of a peculiarly black awareness of the disavowed brutality of American life. Stay woke counseled the radical folk singer Lead Belly in a 1938 recording of a song about the Scottsboro Boys, teenagers falsely accused of rape, who became the proto-Black Lives Matter cause célèbre of their time. In a New York Times op-ed more than two decades later, the novelist William Melvin Kelly noted woke among the words white beatniks were appropriating from the black vernacular to refer to a hipness to the real state of things. A few years before Kelly put woke in the pages of the Times for the first time, Norman Mailer published his controversial essay, The White Negro in Dissent. In it, Mailer wrote admiringly of the existentialist attitude he ascribed to black Americans who can't, quote, saunter down a street with any real certainty that violence will not visit them, end quote. He didn't use the word woke, but he was offering a definition of it when he invoked a typically black disbelief in the words of men who had too much money and controlled too many things. Nearly 60 years later, white readers of Between the World and Me were electrified by the same sort of wisdom Mailer had attributed to black Americans, Coates' disquisitions on black bodies, his excoriations of the American dream, his bitter remarks on the victims of the 9-11 attacks. The neo-woke publishing boom kicked off by Coates in the mid-2010s, in this sense, revived and mainstreamed an older dissenting strain of American racial discourse that rejected the Whiggish take on the civil rights movement that had passed into America's civic religion well before Obama's rise. Coates identified this counter-tradition with James Baldwin, whose book, The Fire Next Time, published in 1963, served as the main model for his 2015 bestseller. The alternative intellectual genealogy of racial dejection also included various underground currents of black nationalism and Afrocentrism, in which Coates, Kendi, and Hannah Jones had all dabbled in their early lives, as well as more academically prestigious bodies of literature such as critical race theory and Afro-pessimism. There are empirical reasons why Obama's vague enconiums to a post-racial utopia lost ground to darker visions of stasis or regress during the last years of his presidency. As the left-wing People's Policy Project demonstrated in a 2017 study, the first black president oversaw a catastrophic and unprecedented evaporation of black wealth. The post-2008 collapse of housing prices saddled America's middle class with underwater mortgages, hitting black Americans the hardest. This wasn't simply the result of a crisis Obama inherited, as the authors of the PPP report insisted. Quote, instead of helping homeowners at every turn, the administration was obsessed with protecting the financial system, and so homeowners were left to drown, end quote. The fallout of these decisions reversed many of the gains that had been made by black Americans in previous decades. To this extent, the notion that Obama-era post-racial triumphalism was a pernicious myth had a solid grounding in reality. 
Yet what characterized the neo-woke manifestos of the 2010s was the transformation of racial oppression into a metaphysical, even ontological, condition. Hence the particular policy decisions that had undercut black prosperity under Obama could be brushed aside, since all they did was ratify once more an internal state of things. Partly for this reason, it wasn't difficult for Democrats and their allied institutions to embrace a set of ideas that might otherwise have amounted to a stinging indictment of the party's governance. Indeed, a convenient effect of the new racial pessimism was to obscure the specifics of how black Americans had fared under liberal governance in favor of generalized ahistorical denunciations of whiteness, of which the Republican Party, especially under Trump, would always be the more obvious representative. Moreover, what was notable about the rise of Coates and his peers wasn't that black intellectuals were channeling something of the disappointment felt by black Americans under Obama. Rather, it was that a dark racial vision that had long enjoyed a degree of traction in some corners gained newfound appeal for the mostly white readers of The Atlantic and The New York Times. This wasn't the first time something like this had happened. Writing in the late 1950s, Mailer argued that the somber insights of the Negro spoke to growing numbers of young, middle-class white people because they offered a radical philosophical response to the general modern predicament. Auschwitz, the atom bomb, and other moral disasters, he argued, revealed to whites, but had always been clear to blacks, that civilizational progress was a lie, that beneath the bromides of American optimism lay untold horrors of oppression. Quote, the only life-giving answer, end quote, to such a devastating realization, Mailer wrote, was, quote, to divorce oneself from society, end quote, and thereby to, quote, set out on that uncharted journey into the rebellious imperatives of the self, end quote. The imperatives drawn from the white rediscovery of racial fatalism in the 2010s were very different. They typically entailed not countercultural rebellion or societal exit, but a submission of the self to ever-evolving and increasingly institutionalized moral strictures, for one thing, avoiding the sort of cultural appropriation Mailer had observed approvingly. The demand wasn't that society be abandoned, but remade, especially by way of an expansive bureaucratic apparatus of moral oversight. Those who capitalized on these trends weren't countercultural outsiders, but the stakeholders of leading cultural, political, and economic institutions. If Mailer's contemporaries had sought to extricate themselves from the square American mainstream, in our own time, it was the mainstream itself that sought a new animating sensibility and found it in a body of writing that condemned it as irredeemably racist. The ascendancy of this austere vision bespoke and attempted to fill a vacuum of shared purpose. The decades leading up to it had witnessed the rise and fall of two attempts to reanimate the nation's sense of its collective mission. The first, which George W. Bush's freedom agenda, which met a bloody end in Fallujah and Abu Ghraib. It was succeeded by Barack Obama's hope and change promise, which was all but suffocated in the cradle by the financial collapse of 2008, only to be snuffed out for good by further foreign policy failures, a surprisingly anemic domestic policy, and the rise of Donald Trump. Liberals attempting to wield power retreated from grandiose promises, with enthusiasts of both the freedom and hope agendas coalescing around fear of fascism and loathing for Trump. This paranoid retrenchment helped make America's elite redoubts hospitable to racial pessimism in the ensuing years, even as they attempted to present a unified front of hashtag resistance, liberal spaces were consumed by internal conflict 
as many who didn't fall in line with the new orthodoxy faced cancellation. Now, let's just pause again because that's the end of this section. And let's appreciate the kind of analysis that this is. Let's savor this moment and internalize the approach. It is my entire adult life to this point and my years as a teenager as well that we're talking about as far as the time period in question. George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and now Joe Biden, that's my being a man and thinking of my country and thinking of myself in relation to my country and thinking of my country in relation to the world and thinking of the world that we live in now and my country in it and me in my country in relation to history and the moral fabric of the universe, the way that George W. Bush's freedom agenda and Barack Obama's hope and change framed the debates in my teenage years, in my 20s, the way that Donald Trump's candidacy and presidency have affected my relationship with friends and family, have affected the cultural landscape and the political discourse, the way that Joe Biden's presidency to this point has affected my bottom line, how I'm able to provide for my family, how I'm trying to prepare my sons and my daughter for being adults in their own right in the coming years. All of that as the framework for our thinking about wokeness and cancel culture and this new orthodoxy, this is really valuable and this is more robust than just being critical of or snarky about wokeness, so-called. To understand what's going into the cake, what are the ingredients here, you really do have to appreciate that George W. Bush irreversibly changed the consciousness of the United States of America with prosecuting the war on terror. The nation building that was engaged in didn't just affect my generation in an abstract. If we didn't go off to serve in the armed forces overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan, we had friends, we had family who went off to serve. And there was no having a neutral orientation with regards to those things that were happening, that were being threatened, or what was being claimed we needed to prepare for, or we needed to safeguard against. There, there was no neutral position to take. You're either with us or you're against us. Are you with us? All right, well, then we're against the terrorists. We're anti-terror. And in some sense, the anti-terror narrative, when that got tired or when it looked like there was some question of, well, who's terrorizing who? Maybe we're the terrorists. When that line of questioning started to get some traction in America and around the world, Barack Obama came in with a rather more upbeat prescription. Even as he was calling for hope and change along very different ideological and political and philosophical lines than George W. Bush, it was anti-what? It was still anti the standard way of doing things. It was basically 
to signal that you've been hopeless to this point, but then I'm here and my presidency is going to change things. Well, change for the better, change for the worse, like change for the sake of change. Well, no, it's going to be hopeful change, right? You should be hopeful about the kind of change that I'm bringing. But then 2008, the year that my second born son was born, my first born, my oldest son being born in 2007, my wife and I got married at the very end of 2006, 2008 being when the financial system collapsed and it was all about bailouts for the system and for big corporations and for Wall Street and for the banks. That didn't just affect some macro abstract conjecture, like a thought exercise. No, it affected me and my wife and our young sons. It affected our material prosperity. It affected our social situation. As everybody has an opinion about the direction of the country, so also for a young couple, just married, having kids, everybody has an opinion, especially dependent on do they see you doing well materially? If they see you doing well materially, and I know for a fact that this is a major factor because the perceptions and the tone shifted dramatically when we moved back to my home state of Montana in 2012 and I started making six figures working in the oil and gas industry. When they see that you're not doing well materially, regardless what the macro situation is, regardless of a financial collapse and bailouts for Wall Street, but not for Main Street, et cetera, et cetera, it changes the way that people relate to you and it changes your view of not just the country and not just of the world, but your view of yourself. To think about anti-racism and to think about wokeness in terms of a certain disillusionment with the false promise or the empty promise, the promise not adequately made good on by Barack Obama of hope and change, that's helpful. That's a helpful insight. Furthermore, to think about wokeness as being not so removed from George W. Bush's anti-terrorism bend is also, again, instructive. Because maybe, just maybe, going all in with a neoconservative on anti-terrorism made us especially vulnerable for anti-racism and anti-wokeness now, taking the place of anti-racism. And so a pendulum swings back and forth based on what are we against? Who do we hate today? <laughs> what do we despise? What are we going to sell like gangbusters, a book opposed to next? Who do we cancel now? With the ascendancy of Barack Obama, we were supposed to cancel George W. Bush and the anti-terrorists who probably were actually motivated by racism or Islamophobia. With Donald Trump, we were supposed to cancel Barack Obama and the Chicago politics being infused into our bureaucracies, the media fawning over Barack Obama, big tech being in love with Barack Obama. We were supposed to cancel all of that. And now, as of the last going on four years, we're supposed to cancel everybody associated with Donald Trump. And it's interesting. It's interesting when you start putting it in those terms and you start thinking about, okay, what are we going to be 
vulnerable to, what are we susceptible to next? If this is our tendency, if this is too much what we've decided to be about and how we've decided what we coalesce in relation to, are we actually embracing a robust view of the good life and what is true and what is right? Is this enduring or is this just the fad of the moment? This is just the latest thing. Back to Geoff Schollenberger's compact article. He writes, Opposition to the new progressive doctrines became increasingly hazardous for liberals as the 2010s wore on. For conservatives, on the contrary, it was all too easy and didn't even require much of a shift in messaging from earlier decades. Whereas Coates and like-minded black intellectuals of the 2010s saw a massive breach between themselves and Obama's Democratic Party, roughly the same breach between liberalism and the identity synthesis documented by Monk, the right had spent years casting Obama not as a moderate heir of the civil rights movement, but as a Kenyan anti-colonialist animated by hatred of America and the West. Likewise, conservative anti-woke authors, although they recognize that something shifted in the past decade, tend to reassert a basic continuity in liberal culture before and after the 2010s. The journalist and activist Christopher Rufo's America's Cultural Revolution exemplifies this approach. Rufo takes a well-worn path through the intellectual history of the modern left, focusing on the way foreign ideas infiltrated liberal academia and from there established a beachhead in mainstream American culture. Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind, the most widely read 1980s culture war tract, took a similar approach. At the center of America's cultural revolution are the biographies of four intellectuals. There are the new left philosophical guru, Herbert Marcuse, and his famous student, Angela Davis, both familiar figures in right-wing demonology, whom Rufo treats with more nuance than other polemicists. His other two main characters, not quite as well-known, but probably more influential overall, are the Brazilian pedagogical theorist, Paulo Freire, and the legal theorist and CRT pioneer, Derek Bell. All of these figures, having come to terms with the failure of older left projects of radical societal transformation from below, set out on an alternative path to revolutionary change. They were helped in this by America's liberal institutions, which gave them long-term employment. Remuneration, prestige, and the opportunity to teach generations of young people. As Rufo acknowledges, this long march changed those who undertook it as much as it altered the institutions they passed through. It is here that, Despite the familiarity of his basic narrative, he offers some worthwhile insights into what is particular about present-day progressivism. Marcuse, Davis, and Freire all sought to overthrow the capitalist order at the outset of their careers. In the end, they settled for grants, tenure, institutional canonization, and other forms of social capital. Bell, in Rufo's telling, was an adept institutional player from early on, and he is, in a sense, the most representative of the radicals portrayed in the book. Present-day practitioners of CRT and adjacent disciplines, Rufo writes, still, quote, pretend they are striking at the foundations of the capitalist order, but when their campaign inexorably fails, they simply want their cut, end quote. Think of Nicole Hannah-Jones delivering a talk on emancipation sponsored by Shell Oil. Here, Rufo's account converges with the progressive writer, Freddie DeBoer's, addition to the anti-woke bibliography, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement, also published this year. Quote, show me a political movement, DeBoer writes, quote, 
and I'll show you those who find a way to profit off of it, end quote. Black Lives Matter, he notes, was spearheaded by, quote, graduate students and professors, journalists and pundits, writers and actors, and, of course, professional organizers and nonprofits, end quote. And many of these actors parlayed their advocacy into jobs, promotions, grants, fundraising coups, and other opportunities without doing much for the George Floyds of the world. A subset of professionals may thus thrive in part by doubling down on racial pessimism. Quote, the only racial progress that really matters is forcing us all to think and talk about race, end quote, as DeBoer notes, since this is what ensures those in this class continue to earn a living. Some on the right assure us that Marxist tyranny is just around the corner or claim we are already living under a form of communist rule. For DeBoer, on the contrary, the point of racialist progressivism is to leave the current form of capitalism intact by channeling demands for radical change into projects that serve the interests of a handful of elites and elite aspirants. He cites the philosopher Olafumi Taiwo's notion of elite capture, developed in a recent book of that title, according to which identity politics began with more radical aims but was eventually taken over by elite interests. De Boer's subtitle announces a similar thesis, although he hedges somewhat on whether he agrees with Taiwo that there was some original radical project in identity-driven activism that was watered down at some later date, in contrast, the academics Walter Ben Michaels and Adolf Reed have long contended that the left's turn away from class and toward a hodgepodge of racial, ethnic, gender, and other identities was always reactionary in its political implications. Quote, identity politics, they write, is, quote, the politics of an upper class that has no problem with seeing people left behind as long as they haven't been left behind because of their race and sex, end quote. Or, as Reed puts it elsewhere, quote, identitarianism meshes well with neoliberal naturalization of the structures that reproduce inequality, end quote, which is to say, DEI ideology in effect claims that a society in which a tiny minority holds most wealth, ours, would be just if only that minority's racial composition matched the population's. Hence, the pursuit of social justice amounts to diversifying Harvard and the C-suite, even as prospects for the poor and working classes of all races worsen. The basic contours of DEI ideology were evident to anyone on the academic left well before the general population had encountered them. And well before the woke wars, Michaels and Reed were making the case that identitarian politics served to legitimate neoliberal inequality. Their essays on the subject, which originally appeared in various small left-wing journals, have now been collected in the volume No Politics But Class Politics, along with four recent interviews with both authors conducted by the European Marxist academics Daniel Zamora and Anton Jaeger, who co-edited the anthology. The fact that a book focused on peculiarly American racial politics was put together by two Belgian-based academics and published by a British imprint is a reminder of the continued marginality of Reed's and Michael's views within the U.S. left, but also of the increasing influence and relevance of American racial discourse for readers abroad. And that is important to note, by the way. Rufo more or less concedes what Michaels Reed and other dissenters on the left have long claimed that identity politics is at bottom a small c conservative ideology, not a revolutionary one, as its adherents and some of its detractors claim. Its function is to legitimize existing power relations, not overturn them. It does this by expanding bureaucratic oversight, implementing quotas, and the like. Few young people who took to the streets in the 2010s believed their cause amounted to an expansion of certain sectors of the white-collar workforce, but in effect, it did. 
The real consequence of the woke cultural revolution, Rufo says at one point, is to, quote, trap the United States in an endless loop of failure, cynicism, and despair, end quote. Richard Hananiah, author of another 2023 anti-woke manifesto, The Origin of Woke, seems to agree. The situation he deplores isn't the coming Marxist-Leninist dystopia, but the fact that we are, quote, stuck with stagnant institutions that micromanage, end quote, the American people. Contrary to those who would lambast the left's delusions of infinite progress, he deplores the culture of ennui and hopelessness it has fostered. He offers a somewhat more novel account than Rufo of how this state of affairs came about. Like Rufo, and unlike Monk, he insists on a basic continuity between pre- and post-Obama liberalism. In Hananiah's version, the real revolution already took place well before much of anyone in America had heard of Rufo's protagonists, Marcuse, Davis, Freire, and Bell, and had little to do with hard-left activists in its initial phase. It happened when Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Those who drafted the legislation, quote, did not see the bill as a way to remake American society, redistribute wealth, or destroy capitalism, end quote. Rather, they viewed it as a targeted effort at, quote, dismantling a caste system in the South, end quote. However, the means devised to pursue this end, once generalized, became an instrument for re-engineering society more broadly. In the American South, in the middle of the 20th century, Jim Crow had systematically excluded blacks from civic life, which resulted in objective disparities in wealth, status, influence, and educational attainment. Accordingly, the aim of civil rights legislation was not only to end this discrimination, but to reverse its effects by identifying disparities and eliminating them. Once expanded, though, this logic evolved into a, quote, open-ended and indefinite commitment to achieving equality between various groups, end quote, as Hananiah puts it. This project was justified by the assumption that group disparities of all kinds are always the result of discrimination and thus require correction. Ibram X. Kendi thought, in other words, was born well over a decade before Ibram X. Kendi himself, and first put into practice not by activists, but by judges and bureaucrats. As all of this suggests, Hananiah assigns a far less significant role to intellectuals than do Rufo and most other right-wing commentators. For him, if we want to understand how the logic of anti-racism became pervasive in America, we need to look at the court cases that established new precedents, as well as the maneuvers of bureaucrats, the machinations of institutional leaders to avoid falling afoul of discrimination law, and other contingent and mundane processes. The role of thought leaders like Kendi in this account was to provide a philosophical and moral legitimation for all of this after the fact. For instance, once institutions develop a commitment to race-based affirmative action as a permanent necessity, rather than a short-term corrective as its architects presented it, it makes sense that a philosophy like Afro-pessimism would come into vogue in elite universities. By inscribing black oppression into the very fabric of reality, it furnishes a durable source of legitimacy for an administrative function of the university. Rufo and Hananiah are both regarded as avatars of the new right, albeit representing different strands of the movement. But a few details aside, their views are largely continuous with the fusionist right that prevailed between the middle of the 20th century and the early 21st century. Two of the three legs of the fusionist stool were social conservatism and free market economics. These, roughly speaking, are Rufo's and Hananiah's respective emphases. Though they offer different causal accounts, both agree that something went awry in America in the 1960s and the legacy of that decade needs to be rolled back. This differs little from what Republicans have been saying for decades. The fraying of the fusionist consensus resulted mainly from the success of its helmsman, 
Ronald Reagan at defeating Soviet communism, opposition to which had kept the unruling coalition united. Without a common enemy, social conservatives have wavered in their commitment to free market economics, with many now seeing a role for the state in supporting family formation and providing economic incentives against abortion. For their part, many free marketeers, Hananiah, among them, have gravitated toward full-spectrum libertarianism on social issues. The key propagandistic role Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and other conservatives have lately attempted to assign anti-wokeness was a response to this fracturing. Perhaps what was needed to get the fusionist band back together was a new iteration of the Red Menace. Wokeness seemed to fit the bill. When DeSantis looked like a shoe-in for the GOP nomination a year ago, it seemed conceivable that anti-wokeness would become the central plank of the party platform. On the campaign trail, the Florida governor described the Sunshine State as where woke goes to die and spearheaded a bill called the Stop Woke Act. Yet DeSantis's all-anti-woke, all-the-time messaging didn't succeed at propelling him to the nomination. Whatever the reasons for his failure, wokeness was ill-suited to be the new Soviet threat for a few reasons. Rather than a foreign enemy, it is at its core an internal negation of the American national creed, a disaffected worldview that sprang from deep roots in American soil and has long maintained a certain appeal to some precincts. What has changed is that prestigious institutions and educated people have embraced it in larger numbers than ever before. And we'll just stop right there. There are more sections to this article, but like I said, for the sake of time, we can't read the whole thing. You should go read the whole thing. The description for this podcast episode will have the link in it. But we've come to the crux of the matter, which is that anti-wokeness, just like it was a kind of reaction or a swinging of the pendulum to anti-racism, which was something of a reaction to anti-terrorism, all of these are a kind of flapping in the wind with the collapse of anti-communism. When the Soviet Union collapsed, it became very difficult for neoconservatives and more traditional conservatives to find much to agree on because the reason that the neoconservatives had joined the Republican Party in the first place is because the Democratic Party was increasingly sympathizing with communism. But then that's when you find that the anti-communism thing really isn't enough to go on. That's not enough to maintain a coalition that you're opposed to the threat of the Soviets. What happens when you don't have the Soviets anymore to be opposed to? Well, then you find out that you have big government Republicans and you have the more traditional Republicans who are for individual liberty. And increasingly, because we tend to think in more binary options, more bipolar options, and we are as a country and politically and culturally, arguably rather bipolar, perhaps in a sense that's more reminiscent of the mental illness, when anti-woke dries up, we should be concerned about what the next anti-thing is that we're supposed to all rally around. And we should be carefully considering what it is that has staying power beyond just the crisis of a moment or a decade even, because decades come to a close quick enough. What are you for and why are you for it? That needs to be the first thought. And it has to be predicated on truth and beauty and goodness as objective, universal 
institutions of God Almighty himself. That's my contention. That's what I mean when I say I'm a conservative, is that I am persuaded that there is staying power to what it is that Edmund Burke had to say. What he wrote has lasting relevance, that you would rally around truth and beauty and goodness. Maybe we don't always agree about the truth in a particular situation, but we have to agree that truth is an objective thing and that truth is from God because God is truth. Not that truth is God, but Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus says, I am the truth, and when God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, you have a fixed point of reference, and the progressives have never accepted that. Ever since they gave themselves over to secular humanism, they have maybe at the first, only in a subtle way, denied it. But as the decades have given way to centuries, more and more open has been their rejection and even hostility to that claim of Jesus. And as conservatives sometimes are just calling themselves conservatives because they're anti this, they're anti that, and we agree that we're opposed to this. We all hate that thing, so let's work together to stop or destroy that thing, to oppose it. At a certain point, you forget that some of the people thinking of themselves as conservatives, calling themselves conservatives, are in their own minds conserving much of what is false, that is just familiar, and it was working for them. Much of what is corrupt, that they enjoyed about the former paradigm. Even some ugly things they want to cling to, and they call that conservatism. And as long as there's an uglier thing still, we can have a coalition that works together to oppose the uglier thing. And meanwhile, what Jesus says about planks and specks is going right over our heads because we ducked. <laughs> this is good stuff. It really is. Jeff Schellenberger has written an excellent article filled to the brim with insight that is most helpful and most necessary for us to grapple with. But just thinking about what perhaps comes next, if, let's say, for instance, America became where woke goes to die, what would come soon after? A fracturing of the coalition that has generally agreed in being opposed to wokeness, as we find that there's a lot else that we don't agree about as to what is true, as to what is good, what is beautiful. And therein lies the challenge of the moment, to be sure that what we believe is true is really true, objectively. And it won't be just true for the moment, conveniently. It'll be true when it's not convenient. And what's good is not just good because our coalition has decided that this achieves the ends that we desire. No, what is good is what God says is good because God alone is good. And what's beautiful? Well, what's beautiful, again, referring to Edmund Burke, may be just a question that we're humbler after having considered at length, but even that's a benefit, that we would be a little more humble. If we don't fully apprehend the definition of beauty, at least we should have a little more humility and ultimately, that humility should be before God himself. 
who has made beautiful things. But then therein lies, again, the most fundamental challenge that much of what passes for conservatism, much of what is put forward as progress and the way forward, hope and change or freedom or being great again or building back better, is godless. And it insists upon godlessness. And that's the constant. If there's a little God talk here and there, that can't make up for what we have discarded and what we have not conserved sufficiently. And honestly, only on an individual basis between we ourselves and God above, or between our households and God above, or between our local churches and God above, can we conserve the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And you start there. You start there, and if you build competence, he who is faithful with a little will be entrusted with more. You will encounter hate, but if you know what is true, you'll be better equipped to handle it. Going back to 1 Kings chapter 20, before I really well and truly do adjourn for this episode, note that Ahab is a bad man. He's a bad king, and judgment is coming for Ahab at the first verse, even though you don't know it necessarily until the last verse of the chapter. When the prophet says to Ahab, you released who the Lord had committed to destruction, and so your life will be for his, your people for his. God gave the Syrians, who vastly outnumbered and were much stronger than the Israelites, God gave the Syrians into the hands of the Israelites, not because Ahab was so good, but because God is so good. Not because Ahab needed to have the notoriety and the fame, but because God was going to insist on his name being known. Israel remembering that Yahweh is God. When the Syrians discussed after the fact what had gone so wrong in their first attempt to come against Samaria, God decided that their explanations needed a follow-up in another instructive defeat so that they would know Yahweh is the God of the valleys as well as the hills. Yahweh is God alone. And then Ahab does what? You can't talk your way out of it to God. God knows. Ahab might say, if it's just you and him talking, it's mercy. No, it's not mercy. It was an injustice that you let Ben-Hadad go. That was supposed to be the end of Ben-Hadad, and instead you cut a deal. And that's very often how these things go. And you could expect, by the way, whatever the crisis is of our year and our decade, that the godless will very quickly forget that God answered their prayer and delivered them from their enemies. And the first chance they're offered, they will cut deals to make sure that some variation on the status quo remains undisturbed, remains intact and endures. And what if God didn't want the status quo to be conserved in this case? What if Ben-Hadad is supposed to not be king over Syria anymore because he's a wicked king? What if, actually for that matter, Ahab is not supposed to be king over Israel anymore because he is a wicked king? They can make all the deals they want. God will determine the outcome. And so he does. And we'll get into that in the next chapter, and we'll see how that plays out. But for now, for the purposes of this discussion, let us meditate 
on the words of Abraham Lincoln. Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. If that would be our posture, we would have continuity and we would regain a measure of sanity as individuals, as families, as churches, as communities. Our states would be reordered. Our nation would be reordered. Will we? I pray so. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.